there are definitely more distress calls than NGO organizations in the current setup and with the current obstruction that they face could respond to. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. The number of migrants and refugees who are dying at sea while crossing the Mediterranean is at a four-year high. Nearly 2,000 people are confirmed to have died in the Mediterranean thus far in 2023, although the real number is likely higher. In one tragedy alone, about 600 people drowned off the coast of Greece in June. The most popular migrant route in recent months has been from Tunisia to Italy. That was where the MSF Doctors Without Borders rescue ship the Gio Barents was patrolling in early August when it came across a crowded migrant boat that had been adrift for days. My guest today, Margot Bernard of MSF, describes this rescue operation in detail. And through her account of the rescue, she explains how policies of European governments are contributing to a surging number of deaths at sea. If it seems like you're hearing almost daily about dozens of migrants dying at sea, it's because it is happening almost daily. And the story of this one rescue has a tremendous amount of explanatory power about what is driving these tragedies at sea. So here is Margot Bernard of Doctors Without Borders, Médecins Sans Frontières. So to kick off, can I just have you describe the Geo Barents, the rescue ship? I've seen photos. It seems like an impressive ship. Yeah, Geo Barents is an old seismic ship, so it is uh, rather big. She's one of the largest NGO search and rescue vessels in the Mediterranean. Um, so we are quite lucky to be able to perform large rescues and host a large number of survivors before we can finally disembark them in a place of safety. It is a ship where we are working with a charter organization, meaning that there is a crew that is in charge of operating that ship. And we have the crew of MSF, um, that is the search and rescue team, the medical team and the humanitarian affairs team that's operating the rescues and that's looking after the survivors once they are on board. 
And I take it there must be something like a hospital room or hospital beds or something like an emergency room on board the ship? Yes, so we have a small clinic where the medical team can look after some of the cases. So there's medical equipment. Most of the medical care is done directly on the deck because with the number of people, with the way we operate, the medical team can also do consultations in a small corner, let's say, on the deck. And whenever we have a critical rescue, then we must also be able to take all our emergency equipment on the very first place where we will receive the survivors to do any emergency operation that needs to be done during a critical time. I saw on your website that the ship has rescued something like over 3,000 people. When did it first launch and begin these search and rescue operations? I believe the 3,000 people were at the end of last year. Um, By now, we've rescued over 8,000 people. We've been working on this specific vessel since mid-2021. MSF has been working on search and rescue since 2015. So since we've had that ship, we've been very active at sea. We've had very large rescues of over 600 people at a time. And we've also had times where we were doing several rescues in less than 24 hours. So a lot of people have been rescued and have gone on this ship before they were finally disembarked in a place of safety. Does it have like a home port? It does have a home port in Sicily. This is where we go for port calls. This is where we do all our logistic operations, but we do not decide which port is assigned to us to disembark the people that we rescue at sea. So we're generally now assigned places of safety in Italy, but in places that can be quite far from the place where we perform the rescue. And I'd be happy to talk more about this as well, what it means for operations. Yeah, it seems to me, and I've heard it suggested, that Italian authorities are trying to get your ship to disembark people that you've rescued as far as possible from your port so as to stymie your operations. But we can certainly discuss that later. First, I'm interested in just having you walk listeners through a recent rescue operation. Just give us a sense of what this entailed. We can talk about our latest rescue, which took place last week. We generally go at sea and try to patrol or try to respond to distress calls that we receive from different organizations that we receive also sometimes from the rescue coordination center. So that's last rescue. We received a distress alert and before we arrived there, We were lucky enough to have the plane of Sea-Watch supporting us and that was able to locate the place where the boat was in distress and lead us to that boat. So such a collaboration is actually key in ensuring that we find people quickly because otherwise when we receive a distress call, then we go to the latest known location. But sometimes it takes hours and hours of searching for small boats in order to be able to find it, especially they're drifting, especially if the, the current might take them somewhere else. So in that case, we received the location of the boat thanks to Seabird, the plane of Sea-Watch, and they could lead us exactly where the people in distress were. And how long was that between when you received the distress call and when 
Sea Watch located the ship and guided you towards it. How long did it take for you to actually reach the distressed migrants? So in that particular case, I want to say two hours, but I might be wrong. It can take much more time depending on where we are. And this is why also it is very important that all vessels respond to distress calls because it shouldn't be that we have to travel for seven hours to find a boat in distress if there are other vessels in the vicinity. But it is a reality that in some rescues we were traveling and searching for seven hours, ten hours before we could eventually look at the boat and rescue it. What was the scene when you reached the people who needed help? So in that case, there was a very high level of urgency because we heard already from the plane that people were in the water. They could already see this and they informed us, which means that we really have to arrive as soon as possible. And so arriving, getting ready for rescue, meaning that on the ship, we are also calling the whole of the crew to get ready to change their gear and to be ready to get on the water, to get on the deck, to receive those people, knowing that if there are people in the water, there could also be urgent medical cases. So arriving on scene with the boats that we see at the moment on the Mediterranean Sea, there are very unseaworthy boats. They are very often overcrowded. They are quite unstable. So these can also be difficult rescues. And in that case, of course, the main concern was to try and locate the people who were in the water, try to make sure that everybody who was on board the boat was disembarked safely onto the geobarrens so that we didn't risk anyone else falling into the water. So the boat was just kind of drifting. Its engine had stopped working and some people had jumped off the boat or is the boat itself falling apart, which is why people were in the water? So it is actually, how to say, it is actually quite compelling story what happened to them. And it is something that the survivors have shared with us, explaining exactly what happened to them. And the first thing that we have to say is that they were at sea for five to six days before they were rescued. They were on a ship with 50 people, thinking at the beginning that there would be only 35. Then when they embarked, they realized that there would be 50 people on their boat. When they started traveling, they were only given an app with an online compass in order to guide themselves, a few gallons of fuel. And usually on these boats, you also don't really have people who are qualified to captain a boat. So what happened to this specific group is that on the first day, the app that they were using as a compass stopped working. On the second day, They started asking their way with the fishing vessels that they could find, but they didn't really get an answer. So they continued going in the same direction. Then they started seeing other migrant boats on their way and following them. But that same night, the weather got much worse. So with the waves, their engine started getting some water inside and their engine broke down. So they lost sight of the migrants boat that they were following initially. They stopped and this is where they started drifting. So when they started drifting, having no idea of their direction, they had also no idea what would happen to them. So this is also when they started telling us, recounting the story afterward. At this point, they would have done anything to be rescued, but they had no way of finding their way, of calling for help. 
So they tried to continue. They continued drifting. They told us that they were drinking seawater, knowing very well that seawater is not good for you. But just in order to get some moist in the mouth, they would drink a hand scoop of water in the morning, one in the evening, in order to survive. How people fell in the water, it happened when people were very, very thirsty and they saw a container on the water that they thought was containing potentially fresh water. So a person jumped in order to try and catch it. But as he was struggling, two more people jumped into the water to try and help him. But the current was too strong and it took away those people. And we spoke to more people who told us that they were also thinking of jumping in the water to help them, but realizing that they couldn't also swim against the current. So they made a rope with clothes that they took off to try and throw it to those people, but that didn't work. The rope was too short. Eventually, they decided that their best shot was to try and get to the oil platforms that they could see at night thanks to the light and to ask for help. So they used their shoes as paddles to try and move the boat forward and make it to one of the oil platforms to ask for a rescue for the three people who had fallen at sea. And this is around the time that they were finally rescued. So they still kept going for several hours before they were spotted by the plane and before we arrived. So when the plane saw them and they saw people in the water, it was actually people who had jumped in the water to try and move the boat forward. But they were not the people who had been lost at sea. So when we did the rescue, our crew could take 47 people off that boat and transship them to the geobarons. But it's from listening to their stories that they realized that three people were still in the water. So our search and rescue team did a search pattern for three hours and a half. So when we talk about a search pattern, this means scanning the sea, going in circle, doing some kind of a spiral pattern to try and make sure that we don't miss any possible space where somebody could be still swimming, still floating because they had some kind of floating devices um, to try and find those people. After three hours and a half, they managed to find two of them, but the third person was never, found, was never found, unfortunately, and they had to call off the search. So having rescued now 49 people onto the geobarents, what sort of condition were they in? What sort of medical care or presumably even like psychological care did they require upon being rescued? So after being six days in the water, our team found that people were extremely exhausted, extremely dehydrated. And of course, there is the trauma of having been lost for so long and having seen someone that people who were on board with us considered as a friend, seeing that person disappear. So as we have seen in different rescues before, we generally have people with us who carry quite some trauma and who are in need of care that cannot be provided on board a ship. So this is why it's also important that they can disembark as soon as possible to receive psychological support, to receive care, to receive protection, all the services that they desperately need. 
So you mentioned this happened just last week, and we're speaking Tuesday, August 15th. I presume that the migrants set out from Tunisia, which is a popular departing point these days. Is that right? Or did they leave from Libya? No, that's correct. They departed from Sfax. From Sfax, which is the port city in Tunisia. So you have 49 rescued migrants on board. What were their nationalities mostly? All of them were from sub-Saharan Africa. You had many people coming from Gambia, many people coming from Western Africa in general. So these now 49 rescued migrants are on board. Earlier, we teased this idea that Italian authorities make you disembark and like faraway ports, so presumably as to stymie your work. Was that what happened here? What happens next after having rescued migrants? Where do you take them? After we've done a rescue, the situation at the moment is that we receive a place of safety assigned by the Italian authorities generally. And in that case, we were assigned a port in La Spezia, which is at the very far north of Italy. And just geographically, you're out you know, off the coast of Tunisia, and they're making you go all the way to the north of Italy. Yes. So we are talking about three days of navigation to get there. Why so far away? Is my presumption seemingly accurate to you? So what we are seeing at the moment is a general practice of the Italian authorities of assigning distant ports to NGO search and rescue vessels. And this is combined with a decree law that says that whenever we are assigned a port, we must go to it as soon as possible and as fast as possible, basically. So this prevents us from carrying other rescues. And this prevents us also from continuing to patrol at sea, which is what we would normally be doing after a rescue, is knowing very well that there are more boats departing from Libya and Tunisia. We would try and remain in the area for at least some time to make sure that there are no other distress cases that need urgent help before we leave and before we go disembark the survivors. Now, with this law and with the practice of assigning us distant ports, we do a rescue and then we spend several days navigating in order to disembark those people. These are days where we cannot help any other boat in distress. And when we see the situation now in the central Mediterranean and all the shipwrecks that have happened in the last days, it is very dramatic. And it's like a deliberate consequence of this Italian law requiring you to stop patrolling and go to distant ports. And it's all predictable and presumably designed that way, right? The Italian authorities, I guess, seem to believe that search and rescue operations provide some sort of comfort or pull factor for migrants seeking to make that risky journey. It obstructs search and rescue activities of civilian organizations, but also it takes the focus on the activities of NGOs. So while you shrink that humanitarian space, you're also putting it under the projectors, as you said, suggesting that it might create a pull factor and putting aside the fact that actually the proportion of the rescues done by NGO actors account for a very small number of the people who are arriving to Italy. So by constantly talking about the work of NGOs, by creating laws to restrict their activities, 
what we are doing is that we're politicizing this space and we are taking the focus away from the tragedy that is currently at play. I want to talk a bit about that tragedy as well, because, you know, so far, more than halfway now, eight months through 2023, we are seeing just a higher number of deaths at sea than we have in many, many years. I mean, presumably, the laws of the Italian government that you just described are one factor that is you know, reducing the ability of rescue ships like yours to operate effectively. What else is causing this apparent surge in migrant drowning deaths at sea that we're seeing? One of the main factors, but that we have been seeing also for many years, is the fact that the European states are slowly removing all search and rescue capacity from the central Mediterranean, making sure that all this is treated as border management and is externalized to third countries. The result of that is that there is no search and rescue happening near Libya, near Tunisia, or not nearly as enough to prevent these shipwrecks. And just to stop you there, by externalized to third countries, presumably you are referring to agreements that the European Union has entered into with authorities in Libya, the so-called Libyan Coast Guard, to patrol their own waters and turn around migrant ships. And now, as we're seeing an increase and a real shift in migrant departures from Libya to Tunisia, it seems that the European government is trying to do the same thing. And you know, fund Tunisian authorities to patrol their waters to turn around migrant ships. Yes, and what we can say about these externalization policies is that what they tend to do is not fully stop migration. They only make migration routes more dangerous because when you're creating this containment in those countries, then you end up with a cycle of abuse that people are desperate to escape. And like we've seen in Libya, we're seeing in Tunisia now that people will do anything, including taking on very unseaworthy boats in order to escape and try to make it to Europe. I've also seen on that unseaworthy boats point that the boats coming out of Tunisia are like uniquely bad compared to other boats because in one part that they're like metal boats and have just like a very bad reputation compared to at least other boats that were previously used out of Libya. So that seems to be another exacerbating factor. There are for sure the small metal boats that we see coming from Tunisia are extremely dangerous. Many things can go wrong with these boats. We're also seeing very unseaworthy vessels leaving from Libya, the inflatable boats that can break and some of the worst shipwrecks happened on bigger shipping vessels that had left from the east of Libya. And these vessels loaded with 500, 600 people when they capsized. It is, of course, a terrible tragedy. So what can be done to reverse this cycle of, I don't know, it seems inhumanity to me to, to sort of not provide adequate search and rescue operations? What can be done to support the safer migration of people from, say, North Africa across the Mediterranean Sea? So when we're talking about safer migration, there's always the question of 
what do we do in the short term? What do we do when these tragedies are happening now? And what do we do in the longer term to try and make sure this does not happen again? In the shorter term, we need to reverse that movement of search and rescue actors pulling off and externalizing their duties to render assistance at sea. We need the EU, we need coastal states to be more active in detecting those cases and sharing information, coordinating rescues, so also involving NGO vessels as long as we can render assistance, making sure that all assets that can help are put in the right place and given the right information to make sure we avoid these shipwrecks. In the longer term, of course, there's the question of legal and safe access to migration, to routes to Europe, in order to avoid that people have to get on those boats altogether. So where's the GeoBarents right now and where is it headed to next? The GeoBarents is currently at sea. It will start patrolling today or tomorrow. We will see in the coming day what happens if we receive a distress case, when we will start to provide assistance again to people in distress. Does it receive distress calls like every few days or how frequent are these? The distress calls are relayed by organizations at the moment, NGOs, and you can actually follow them on Twitter if you want to see how many distress calls are received every day, but they're receiving several distress calls per day. There are definitely more distress calls than NGO organizations in the current setup and with the current obstruction that they face could respond to. Thank you so much, Margot. This was very, very helpful. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Global Dispatches. Our show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg, and edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you have questions or comments, please email us using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Before you go, do take a moment to show your support for the show by becoming a premium subscriber. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can do so with a couple taps of your thumb. If you're listening elsewhere, you can go to patreon.com slash global dispatches. We rely on support from listeners to continue to do what we do far into the future. And by becoming a premium subscriber, you will unlock access to our entire archive of hundreds and hundreds of episodes. Please rate or review the show on Apple Podcasts. <laughs>